Thank you, Mike. Good morning. Well, as Mike read, we are in Romans 3, 21 through 26 this morning. That might be confusing because last week we were in Romans 3, 27 through 31, and the week before we were in Romans 4, 1 through 8. It's part of our new preaching series, Romans in Reverse. We're just taking the whole book and just working backwards. Not really. Uh, so some of you know there was a medical emergency in my family, so we had to kind of switch around uh, some of the uh, preaching schedule. And so as we prepare ourselves to hear uh, from Romans three twenty one through 26 this morning, as you turn in your Bible or open up your tablet or whatever it might be, I want to tell you about man pong. What is man pong? If you have ever wondered, and I'm sure everyone has, what would a game that is kind of like full contact team ping pong, what would that look like? That is man pong. And this is something that uh, the staff will occasionally get together uh, and do. And we play this game called man pong. It is, again, this combination kind of like volleyball in the sense that there are partners and you get multiple hits. You can set your partner up and they can spike it. It's kind of like ping pong because you're playing on a ping pong table and you have ping pong paddles. But it's also uh, kind of like rugby or football because uh, if you encroach on the other team's side, they can slam into you for no reason other than guys just make up really stupid games. And so uh, this is a game that we will occasionally play. And let me tell you a little bit about the players. So uh, Zach, whenever he's playing, the bulk of his time, he's actually distracted. He's not really paying attention to the game. He is more paying attention to coming up with really clever names for the various objects and obstacles in the room. So if the ball goes up on a shelf, he calls it the shelf of destiny. There's like this place that he calls the Bermuda's Triangle. There's a, uh, something hanging from the ceiling. He calls it Jeff's Noose for some reason. Carl, meanwhile, Carl, meanwhile, he is self-deprecating. And so the entire time we're playing, he's talking about how he hates the game, and he's horrible at it, and he throws his paddle in frustration. That's Carl. Uh, I just play the game. That's all I do. But Tim, sweet, sweet Tim, I'll tell you a little bit about how Tim plays uh, man pong. And, uh, and so Tim bends the rules. And by bend it, I just mean break it. That's basically what he does. He just breaks the rules all the time. And he gets into these giggling fits. You ever seen Roger Rabbit and the cartoons that just laugh themselves to death? That's kind of what Tim does whenever he's playing. He just gets into these giggling fits. And his favorite thing to do is to check you as hard as he possibly can. Now, you might look at him and think, Tiny Tim is not able to inflict much damage. But man, that guy can really pack a punch. His pants are probably wound up so tight that he has all of this force and energy. And, uh, and so the other day, we're, uh, we're playing. And, uh, and so I'm uh, on his side of the table. I've gone over there probably to pray or something like that. And uh, out of, uh, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I am hit by what I can only assume is nuclear fission or something like that, and I slam into the wall with like the force of a thousand suns. Uh, my knuckles are literally bleeding. Figuratively, I'm bleeding everywhere. Uh, like a, a single tear rolls down my cheek as I realize I'm never going to see Casey and Larkin again. My, my spleen has exploded uh, upon impact. Meanwhile, uh, I, I turn around and Tim there, drunk with power, having conjured up like the strength of Thor, is maniacally laughing, just giggling his head off. And it was totally, totally unexpected just for me to get blindsided like that. I thought Tim and I were okay. 
we hang out, we make jokes, all of that kind of stuff. Our families dine together, and, uh, and so I thought things were good. But I did not know that apparently Tim has a little notebook, and every time we make fun of his pants or his Prius or something like that, he writes it down in there and he mutters something like, someday, someday they'll see. And so this was the day. This is Tim's little version of Samson when he gets his revenge in the Philistines by pulling down uh, the towers. This is Tim's ultimate act of retribution. But it was totally unexpected uh, from my perspective. That's like our text this morning. There are a lot of things that we've been talking about that the uh, first century Jews expected. The first century Jews expected salvation. The first century Jews expected forgiveness of sins. The first century Jews expected justification. But they expected all of those things to come through their Jewishness. They expected those things to come through the distinctives of their Jewishness. They expected them to come through the Mosaic Law. They expected those things uh, to come through circumcision. And so this text this morning is totally unexpected for them. If you will, Paul slams into the back of them and screams and says, yes, justification is here. Yes, salvation is here. Yes, forgiveness is here. But not like you expected it to come. Although you should have expected it because the law and the prophets have testified to it. You should have heard it coming from a mile away. That's what our text is going to be about this morning. So I want to pray for us, and then we will uh, we'll dive into Romans uh, chapter 3. First, I want to ask just for you to pray for yourself as we all come in here with distractions, we all come in here with fears or struggles, or maybe we're just thinking about the upcoming NFL draft, or we're thinking about lunch, or whatever it might be, and so ask the Lord to give you just this moment of clarity where your heart and your mind are undivided, and you're able to listen to His Spirit speaking through His Word, and then pray that for those around you, whether they're your friends or family or complete strangers, that the Lord would give us corporately this desire and ability to engage with the text this morning. And then pray for me as well, that I would be faithful and bold in proclaiming the Word. So Father, we do thank You for Your grace, Your goodness, Your mercy to us. We thank You that You are a God who reveals Yourself and delights to reveal yourself when you've done so uh, in your word this morning. And so I pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear it because you're a good father and you give good gifts. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We'll begin in verse 21 of Romans 3, which says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. If you've been coming to Parkway only for the past few months, you've only pretty much heard about condemnation and shame and darkness and depravity. And the reason for that is not because we're like super emo moody church or something like that. It's because this is the message of Romans 1, 2, and going into the first half of chapter 3. It is a message of gloom and doom. It's a message of condemnation so that when we get to this text in particular, that the glory of the gospel would shine all that more brilliantly and brightly. So for the past two chapters, Paul has exposed sin and condemnation. And he's demonstrated that neither the law nor circumcision 
could overcome the sinful tendencies of man. Bear in mind, whenever we talk about law in the context of Romans 3, we're not talking about the law of thermodynamics. We're not talking about the law of gravity. We're not talking about Murphy's Law or something like that. We're talking about the Mosaic Law, the law that is given to Israel in the wilderness by God, 600, consisting of 613 commandments that ordered all aspects, moral, ceremonial, civil, all aspects of Jewish life. And this was the hope and expectation of the Jews that God's deliverance would come through these instruments. And this text is going to help us again carry on with this context that we've seen that these things are unable to bring about uh, the things that, uh, that they were hoping for. We talked about this before. The law itself is good. The law itself is holy. The law itself is righteousness. The problem is not in the deficiency of the law. The problem is in the deficiency of of man, we gave the illustration the law is like a car. The law is like a car, and the car is good and useful. It's a blessing to get you where you want to go. But the problem is that mankind universally is inebriated. We're intoxicated. We are 1,000 times the legal limit. So for us getting behind that car, it is no longer a source of blessing, it is a source of curse for us. And it doesn't matter if that car is a Prius or a Kia or a Bentley, or whatever it might be, all of us, the problem consists in our hearts. That's what we've been working through in the context. And so the law is good, but people are bad. And so rather than redeeming us from sin, the law merely reveals our sin. It manifests our sin. It demonstrates our sin. But Paul says that now, but now, there's this temporal element, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. He's saying that God's righteousness is being revealed, but not like the Jews expected. But they should have expected it because it was embedded throughout the Old Testament in promises like where uh, God appears to Abraham and says, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Well, how would that happen? Because not all the families of the earth have received the Mosaic Law or the Covenant of Circumcision. There's all these little hints. There's all these little whispers throughout the Old Testament that God's righteousness is going to be revealed apart from the law, apart from circumcision. Although the law and the prophets are going to testify of it, they're going to bear witness to it that God's righteousness is being revealed but it's being revealed through some other means rather than these markers of Jewish identity, rather than these distinctives like the Mosaic Law and circumcision. So what is this righteousness of God? In Greek, it's dikaiosune theou. What is this righteousness of God? Well, the first time that we encounter it in Romans is in Romans chapter 1. We looked at it in verses 16 and 17, so we want to go back to that. Where Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God, dikaiosune theou, is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteousness, the righteous shall live by faith. And we talked about the fact that this righteousness of God refers to the rightness of His saving activity. It's saying here that salvation is is revealed apart from the law because through the law comes the knowledge of sin, which is why we need something better, something greater than the law. We need a designated driver, and Jesus is the only one who is sober. 
So rather than the law, the saving activity of God is appropriated, he says, by faith. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The redundancy there, faith, and for all who believe, the redundancy there is to help us to see that this thing is revealed not through the law, but through faith in Christ for all who believe. Man or woman, slave or free, Jew or Gentile in the context. And speaking of Jew and Gentile, let's look at the next verse. Starting in uh, the latter half of chapter, or verse 22. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is what this entire passage in chapter 3 has been building toward. This sort of universal declaration of the fundamental problem facing humanity. There is no distinction. That is, in the context, what he's saying there, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Alike, all are under sin and fall short of God's glory. Now, if you're in the first century, various things separated Jews from Gentiles. The way that they dressed, the way that they spoke, what they ate, what they did, where they worshipped, how they worshipped. All of these things separated Jews from Gentiles. All these things distinguished Jews from Gentiles. But this particular area, there was no distinction between Jew and Gentile. When it came to sin... Jews and Gentiles alike are all condemned. All are consigned to sin. For all their many differences, there was no distinction, no difference at all in regards to the fact that they were all sinners. All alike are sinners. And this is not just a historical reality. This is a present reality for us as well. For all now are sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not just that we sin, but as we've seen, as we've looked at Romans 1 and Romans 2 and Romans 3, the first half, we've seen it's not just that we occasionally do sin, but that we are under the realm and reign of sin. Sin is our master. We're under the dominion of sin. We're under it. We're born under it. It's our master. And as a result... The Bible has said over and over and over again as we've looked at it that we are inherently wicked and evil. We're wicked and evil. And unless the reason that we harped on this, the reason we spent time in our theological equipping class, the reason that we spent so many weeks talking about depravity and condemnation and wrath and all of these sorts of things, is unless we realize how desperately depraved we are, We'll never understand how desperately loved we are. We'll never understand the depths of God's grace and mercy to us unless we understand what we have merited, what we have deserved, what we have earned as a result of our sin. The gospel will seem to us, when we get to the good news, it will seem to us some light and trivial thing. It will seem like someone just handing us a Band-Aid to cover a little paper cut rather than what the gospel really is, which is us being pulled out of water where we've already drowned and someone expelling the water from our lungs and giving us CPR and getting our hearts back beating. There's the difference between how you see the gospel based upon how you see your own sin. That's why we've spent so much time digging in uh, to that. There's certain churches, there's certain pastors, there's a celebrity pastor in particular who talks about how he never wants to talk about sin. He always wants to talk about grace. He wants to talk about happiness and so forth. But I would submit to you, the Bible would submit to you, there is no grace. There is no fundamental gospel message apart from our understanding of sin. 
If you want to preach grace, if you want to preach joy, you have to preach sin. That's what the text is saying here. Unless you understand sin, you'll never scratch the surface of God's love and grace. You'll never uh, experience anywhere near the gratitude that you should for the gospel. And the text says that as a result of our sin and evidence of our sin, we fall short of the glory of God. That's how this entire long section on condemnation that began in chapter 1, verse 18, that goes all the way to our, our, our text that's immediately preceding this, that entire section, nearly three chapters, was built upon the reality that we fail to glorify God and give Him thanks. Rather than worshiping the Creator, we worship creation. We trade this infinite treasure for perishable little trinkets, for trivial little things. So we fall short of His glory. Now, we could read this and we could make the mistake of thinking, maybe this is a small little thing. I missed it by that much sort of idea. When I was in uh, high school, I really wanted to dunk a basketball. That was, my, uh, that was my goal in life, my only goal in life at the time. And, uh, and so I wanted to dunk a basketball, and I never could quite get it. I could get like a girl's ball because I could actually palm that, and I could dunk that, but I never could quite get Every time I would try with a, a men's ball, it would just kind of clank off the front of the rim like those old Sprite commercials, and then I'd fall down. Uh, but I never could quite get it. And we might think maybe that's it. That's mankind falling short. We're just not quite getting there. That's not the imagery. If you've understood what we've talked about in chapters 1, 2, and 3, a better image for that would be you getting uh, on, the, uh, on the ground right outside the Empire State Building, and there's a hoop at the, uh, the top of the, the, uh, the apex of the building and attempting to dunk on that. You're not even going to get close. That's our sin. That's our falling short. So this is the problem, that all sin, that all fall short, all are under condemnation, Jew and Gentile, you and me. But now we get to the solution here in verses 24 into 25. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Let me read that again because that's so rich and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. You would be hard-pressed in the entire Bible to find one passage that is so full of rich theological verbiage as this. It's like a kid in a candy store or Zach in a candy store or something like that. It's like this gold mine of gospel truth. Everywhere you look, there are little glimmers. There are little hints of glory and grace of the gospel. And so what I want to do in our time in this section is I just want to mine out for us. I want to excavate three words in particular. Justified, redemption, and propitiation. And if you understand those three words, you understand the heart of what Paul is saying here in this passage so we'll start with justified. What does it mean to be justified? You might have heard uh, the saying before that, uh, that justified means that God looks at me just as if I had never sinned, which is really cute and clever, but it's not accurate. It's not correct. That's not what justification uh, entails. It doesn't go nearly far enough. Justification is so much more than just God looking at you just as if you had never sinned. 
It's not merely declare, that you are declared not unrighteous. It's that God makes a positive declaration about you. He declares you to be righteous. It's not merely that you are being forgiven a debt of unrighteousness, but also that you're being a, given a credit of righteousness. That God forgives your sin and also He counts all of Christ's righteousness as your own. Imagine you borrow some exorbitant amount of money, $100 million, because you have the next sort of billion-dollar idea. You have the next, like, Beanie Babies or something like that. And you know there's no way that this can miss, and so you sign this, uh, this uh, agreement whenever you borrow the money that there's going to be this exorbitant interest. What do you care? You've got the next great idea. You're going to be the next Rockefeller or Carnegie or Scrooge McDuck or something. And so you've got this sort of uh, brilliant idea, and then you lose it all. Every bit of money, and you know there's no way in a thousand lifetimes that you could ever repay this money. And the loan collector comes to you, and you prepare yourself for the worse, and he says, your debt has been paid. Not only that, he tells you, go check your bank account. And you look in your bank account, and you have $500 trillion dollars. And it's gaining interest at a rate of 100% per day. There's literally no way that you could ever exhaust these resources. That's what justification entails. Not merely that you're forgiven a debt, but also that you're credited. All that is unrighteous about you is removed. And it is credited to your account all of God's goodness and grace. Every ounce of Christ's goodness and righteousness and holiness is counted as yours It's being forgiven an infinite debt and being given an infinite good. That's justification. Last year, some of you are familiar with the fact that uh, last year marked the 500th anniversary of the Protestant uh, Reformation. And justification by faith was this sort of uh, main hub in this revolution that took place 500 years ago. You see, in in medieval Roman Catholicism, there was this increasing idea of justification on on the basis of works, that in some sense, the things that we do are meriting, in some sense, the things that we do are helping us to attain or at least retain God's grace and, and righteousness. And it was this idea, this idea of justification, but justification not by works, Justification not by the law, justification not by circumcision, justification not by any of these sorts of things, but justification by faith, which freed the reformers from this constant treadmill of wanting to do good, which is a universal sort of desire, whether it's through the Mosaic law or some other form of good deeds, there is this innate resistance in the human heart. In every one of us, there's this innate resistance to the message of grace. That there's something about us. We inherently want to be self-made men and women. We want to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. The problem with that, biblically though, is that the straps are broken and our hands are broken and our feet are broken and we don't even have any boots in the first place. So justification only happens in this context. It says it happens by God's grace as a gift. It's free and lavish. That's justification. What's redemption? Well, there's various images that the authors of, are, uh, authors of Scripture are going to use for what happens for us in atonement, what happens for us in uh, the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But redemption is a concept that's one of the most common and compelling. 
the, the image itself, the word, uh, conner, conjures up this imagery of a marketplace. That's how the word was typically used. It was used of a marketplace. And in particular, it was used of marketplace in the ancient world that, uh, where, you would, uh, uh, where you would purchase slaves. Now, don't get caught up uh, on slavery. We've talked before about how modern slavery and ancient slavery were radically different. In fact, all the modern forms of uh, slavery that we could think of would be explicitly condemned uh, in the Scriptures. We wrote a paper on that. We've preached on that. So feel free just to search the word slavery on our website. Uh, so don't get uh, uh, kind of caught up on uh, that as a sticking point. But this imagery of slavery is going to be really important for us if we, can under, if we want to understand what redemption is. Because the Bible has just spent chapter upon chapter telling us that we are slaves to sin, to self, to Satan, but that Christ's death has redeemed or ransomed us from slavery. And this image of redemption has this sort of rich history that stretches all the way back, well beyond Christ, all the way back into the events of the Exodus, that God's deliverance of His people from Egypt is, uh, has this language associated with it of redemption that is seen as a type of redemption. As Israel is physically redeemed or ransomed from slavery to Egypt, to Pharaoh, so we are spiritually redeemed. We are spiritually ransomed. We're spiritually freed from slavery in the gospel. And this spiritual slavery is what we have hammered on for the past few weeks. Toward the middle of chapter 3, Paul begins to sum up this condemnation. And he uses these words, chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. As we preached through that, we saw that what we are, what we say, what we do, all of those things are under the enslaving power of sin. And in other passages of Scripture, we show that what we think and what we want and what we love are under sin, such that slavery really is this fitting image for our spiritual condition that every aspect of our life is marred and marked by sin, but in Christ we're redeemed, we're ransomed from slavery and delivered into the freedom of being enslaved to God. And this all occurs in Christ, this little phrase, in Christ, that points to this reality of union with Christ, this fountainhead from which all of God's blessings flow to His people. This little phrase, in Christ, is short and sweet, but it packs quite a punch, just like little Tim. This phrase, in Christ, is this fountainhead from which all of the blessings that you and I receive, they're all mediated to us through Christ. Christ is the heir of all of these blessings. Christ is the heir of forgiveness and justification and blessing and life and grace and mercy and love and peace and all of these good things. Every good thing that you have from God is yours only because you are in Christ Jesus. Redemption comes not through the law, not through Jewish distinctives like circumcision, but instead through and in Jesus. Jesus has inherited all the blessings of the Father and thus, in order to be an heir of those blessings, we have to be co-heirs with Christ. So God purchases our freedom, which we receive freely by grace. But what's the price that He pays? And that brings us to the idea of propitiation. This word sounds like something you do for a male pattern baldness or something. That's propitia, 
Propitiation is something entirely different. In order to kind of show what it is, I want you to kind of bear with me for a second. Imagine that you're tying a shoe together and you have two shoelaces. What I want to do is I want to take one shoelace and I want to kind of loop it and then we'll come back to the other shoelace and we'll loop it and then we'll tie those together. So the first one is Old Testament imagery. In order to understand what propitiation is, you have to understand some of this Old Testament imagery. Long before Indiana Jones had found the Ark of the Covenant and it melted like Nazi faces off and so forth, the Ark of the Covenant was in uh, the tabernacle and then in the temple. And just above the Ark of the Covenant was something called a mercy seat. What's really interesting is if you go back and you read the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the same word is used that's translated here as propitiation to translate the word mercy seat. What's so significant about the mercy seat? Well, 364 days a year, you could not enter into the Holy of Holies. You could not enter into the innermost section of the tabernacle or the temple. It was off limits completely. But one day a year, it's the Day of Atonement, the priest would wash himself, and he would put on holy garments, and then he would offer a sacrifice for himself and for his family. And then he'd have to go and he'd have to offer another sacrifice for the sins of the people of Israel. And then he would take that sacrificial blood and he would go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. And above the Ark of the Covenant, there was the mercy seat. And he would take this blood one day a year, the only time that he could enter into this place, and he would take the blood and he would sprinkle it. And where would he sprinkle it? He would sprinkle it explicitly on the mercy seat where atonement was made. By the way, you may have heard stories before about how the high priest would also tie a, a rope around his waist or tie it around his ankle, and he'd have a little bell just in case he struck down dead, and so the other priest could kind of pull him out. Uh, that's not in the Bible. That's not in the Talmud. That's not in the Mishnah. That's not in Josephus. That's not in any historical sources. The first time that we actually read that is like in the 13th century or something like that. So it's like an urban legend. Instead of uh, telling stories about deposed Nigerian princes, our medieval ancestors instead made up stories about high priests. That's not something that actually uh, occurred. So what does all this mercy seat stuff, though, have to do with Jesus? Well, by His blood, atonement has been made. He is the place where man meets with God. No longer is the ark the place where God meets with man. No longer is the physical structure of the temple there in Jerusalem the place where God meets with man. Jesus is the only place where God meets with man. That's one shoelace that propitiation carries this rich Old Testament picture of sacrifice and atonement. But there's another shoelace as well. Some translations, you might actually be reading from a translation that doesn't have the word propitiation there. Your translation might actually say expiation, which is a different theological term, propitiation versus expiation. What's the difference between the two? Well, in really simple terms, expiation deals with the removal of sin. Propitiation deals with the removal of wrath. Expiation has to do with what happens to us. Propitiation has to do with what happens to God. In expiation, our sins are forgiven. In propitiation, God's wrath is satisfied. Now, most of the time when you uh, encounter this word, hilasterion, most of the time when you encounter it in Greek, most of the time it refers to expiation. 
So why have the translators of the ESV translated this instead as propitiation? Because I think they're onto something. I think they're onto something that, yes, expiation happens in the death of Christ, but there's more than that that happens. If you remember, in chapter 1, verse 18, we begin by saying this. We'll put it up on the screen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We began this entire section by talking about the wrath of God. How do we know that he's talking about propitiation? Because nothing has happened to that wrath. Since we began in Romans 1.18, nothing has happened to appease, to satisfy God's wrath. That's how we know propitiation is taking place here. Not merely the forgiveness of sins. Yes and amen to the forgiveness of sins. But also there is this sense in which God's wrath is being satisfied and sin is being forgiven. That's the way that we began our little journey through this little condemnation corridor in the book of Romans. Now, the whole wrath thing might sound strange and unsophisticated. This might sound somewhat antiquated, like bleeding someone with a fever or browsing Blockbuster for a movie or saying whoopsie-daisy or something like that. It might sound really old and arbitrary and antiquated or whatever it might be, but it's not. This is a concept that is fundamental to us understanding the message of Romans, that God's wrath is not antiquated or arbitrary or capricious. We said this whenever we talked about it in Romans 1.18, that it's its active, settled, holy, good, and just response to sin, to evil. And you and I, apart from Christ, are evil. You and I, apart from Christ, are depraved. God's wrath doesn't merely go away if we ignore it. It's not like a feeling You ever had a day, I do this all the time, not all the time, sometimes, I I wake up and I just feel moody. I'm just in a bad mood. I have no reason why. And eventually it goes away. It dissipates. God's wrath isn't like that. It's not a feeling that He has. It's not He woke up on the wrong side of the bed or something like that. It never dissipates. It's not like a feeling or a fog or a mood or something like that. It is God's active, settled, just, holy, right response to sin. It's like taxes. You ignore it at your own peril, right? It's not like a cold that eventually it's just going to go away. It's like a cancer. Unless you deal with it, it's never going to go away. That's what propitiation is. It's the satisfaction of God's wrath. And This is the problem for mankind. The problem isn't just that we're sinners. The problem is that God's wrath is the consequence of our sin, and it must be dealt with that we're under the wrath of God, we're under condemnation. So propitiation is this word that shows us the solution to our problem. That sacrifice is necessary because the only payment for our sin is death. That was the promise, that was the curse in the garden. The wages of sin is death. There must be death and there must be blood for satisfaction of divine justice. So here's where we take the two different shoelaces of Old Testament imagery and this understanding of uh, God's wrath, and we begin to wrap them uh, together. That throughout the Old Testament, there was this elaborate, elaborate, elaborate ritual, this system of sacrifice that was built up, bulls and birds and goats and lambs and so forth. All of these things were sacrificed. But what you see throughout is that none of them actually satisfied God's wrath. 
None of them actually forgave sins. There was no end to it, which is why the year after year after year after year, there would be another day of atonement. And then the next year, there would be another day of atonement. And then the next year, there would be another day of atonement. There was this infinite loop of sin and sacrifice and sin and sacrifice and sin and sacrifice and sin and sacrifice and sin and sacrifice. And if you're tired of me saying sin and sacrifice, imagine how tired you would be to be under this system where there is no resolution. Each year you find yourself just starting over and running the same cycle, the same infinite loop over and over and over again because those sacrifices were never sufficient to atone. They're not intended to actually atone. They're not intended to actually satisfy God's wrath. They instead point to the severity of sin and point to a future satisfaction of God's wrath, a future sacrifice that was actually propitiatory, a future satisfaction of God's wrath. That's what happens in Jesus, that Jesus is now where God and man meet together. Jesus is now where God and man dwell together, that all the images of places throughout the Old Testament where God and man dwell together the garden, the tabernacle, the temple, all of these things have been fulfilled. All of these things uh, reach their culmination in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, He's where wrath is averted and sin is forgiven, and thus God and man dwell together. And as a result, God's wrath is now satisfied, which means there's no more sacrifices to be made. The sacrificial system has been rendered bankrupt. It's been rendered obsolete in the language of Hebrews. It's gone out of business. The altar has been permanently closed. But the temple has now been made permanently open. In the past, only once a year could only one person enter into the presence of God. But what we see here is that now we have access 24-7 365, 366 on a leap year, we have access to the Father through Jesus Christ. There's no ritualistic bath. There's no sacred clothing you need to wear. There's no sacrifice you need to offer. In Christ, you have access to the Father. And that's the good news of the gospel. Not just that you get out of hell, but that you get into the presence of God. The good news of the gospel is that you get God If that's not enough for you, then you have not understood the implications of what I've just said. The good news of the gospel is that you get God. If the fundamental sin of mankind is treasuring the gift over the Creator, then the fundamental reward of the gospel is not getting the gifts, but getting the Creator Himself. Let's look at the last section, which says, this was to show God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So let's summarize so far. We saw that the saving righteousness of God is obtained by both Jews and Gentiles through faith in Jesus, not by works of the law. In fact, no one can be righteous before God by the law since all have sinned and fall short of his glory. That mankind is intoxicated by sin and therefore doesn't matter what kind of car we're driving. The car itself is not going to help us. We need something outside of the car to help us. That's only the work of Jesus Christ. 
that that is what accomplishes for us propitiation and justification. So all of that is the, uh, the what. Now let's look at the why. The final passage here is going to answer that question, why? Why has God given His Son? There's obviously a number of ways that you can answer that. You could say God has given His Son because He loves us, and that's true. God has given us His Son because He's gracious, and that's true. God has given us His Son because He's merciful, and that's true. But that's not the point that Paul is making here in particular. Because God is gracious, God is loving, God is merciful, all of those things are true, but that's not the primary point. He isn't focusing on God's love and grace, but on His justice. That's what the cross displays in this context. How does Christ's death demonstrate the inherent rightness or justice of God's character? I want you to think back for a second to a really familiar story. Most of us are probably really familiar with it. Uh, the story of David and Bathsheba. David is the, David is the king of Israel. Uh, Bathsheba is uh, this, uh, this lady who's married, uh, and, uh, and David commits adultery with her and then has her husband put to death so that his sin would not be discovered uh, and then begins to lie and deceive about it. And so this period of wickedness in this man, David, who's after uh, God's own heart. And then... Uh, David, who's kind of a creeper in this story, uh, David has a prophet, Nathan, who appears before him, and he's caught. What's interesting is he's not put to death. He's guilty of adultery. He's guilty of deception. He's guilty of murder, and he's not put to death. And his throne isn't taken away from him, and he's not blotted out of the book of life or anything like that. Instead, God says through the prophet Nathan, I have put away your sin. How in the world does that happen? How in the world is David guilty of murder and adultery and deception against God, against Bathsheba, against Uriah, Bathsheba's wife, against the entire nation as the king? How in the world can God merely put aside and just let it go? Imagine in our context if that were to happen. Imagine how outraged we are on Twitter or Facebook or whatever it is on the news when the guilty goes free. Judge Wapner or Judge Judy or Judge Reinhold or something like that forgives somebody, just simply lets the guilty go free. Imagine how outraged we are at the injustice that's taken place. So how is the gospel where unrighteous people are declared righteous, how is that not an outrage? How is that not a cosmic injustice uh, on a scale of which we can't even imagine, that's what this passage is answering. You might ask the question, how can a good and loving God condemn sinners? How can a good and loving God, how can a gracious God damn sinners? That is the wrong question. That's not the right question. The right question is this, how in the world can a holy and just God forgive sinners? How can He justify sinners? How can the king offer pardon to traitors who belittle and blaspheme him? How can God forgive you and me for a lifetime of treason? How can God be just while justifying the unjust? That seems like a contradiction. That's the conundrum that only the cross can answer and this passage is explaining. All of the plethora of sacrifices in the Old Testament never really dealt with sin. There was no retribution there was no recompense. There was no restitution. And neither did they really satisfy God's wrath. For God's wrath to be satisfied against humanity, 
a human would need to bear it. So although God was gracious and He offered forgiveness, it wasn't because He approved of sin. It wasn't because God winked at it in the Old Testament. It wasn't because He simply turned a blind eye or was ignorant toward it. He wasn't passively afraid to confront it. Instead, He was looking ahead to this ultimate confrontation. He could patiently endure it and withstand sin because of Christ. So you see, this passage is going to draw together the entire argument of chapters 1 through 3, draw it together to a point that all mankind, Jew and Gentile alike, are under sin and thus under wrath without any defense, any excuse, or any escape. But God offers grace, not by merely forgiving sin, but by exacting restitution upon the Son of God who absorbs divine wrath, thus demonstrating how God can be both gracious and just. You see, the cross is where divine wrath and divine love, where divine justice and divine mercy slam into each other with the force of a thousand sons upon the one Son, the Son of God, for us and for our salvation, that He would experience forsakenness so that we, that you and I, if we love and trust Jesus, would know nothing of wrath, would know nothing of condemnation, but would know only love and joy, and grace, and mercy, and justification. So the last question of the morning, to whom does all of this apply? Is this just for everybody? Is this simply just wipe away sin for all of mankind? God's wrath is no more because of what Jesus has accomplished, but around every corner of the text, the same refrain is going to ring out. That it's to those who believe, for those who have faith in Christ, nearly every verse in this section is going to have some reference to the centrality of faith in this equation. So my question is, is that you? Is God's wrath against you satisfied in Christ? If not, if God's wrath was not poured on Christ for you, then it's still directed toward you. There's nowhere to hide from His wrath except in Christ. That's the only appropriate place. You're either in sin or in Christ, and the only way to be in Christ is submit to the glory and grace of the gospel of a God who would love you and give His Son for you to save you from your sin and from His wrath. So is that you? I'm not asking if you've been baptized. I'm not asking if you come to church. I'm not asking if you're a good and decent person or you give away a certain percentage of your money or whatever it might be. I'm asking, do you love and trust Jesus? That He is your only hope. And He is your only treasure. I'm asking if you love and trust Jesus. This is what it means to be justified. This is what it means to be redeemed. This is what it means to have Christ's sacrifice be for you a propitiation to satisfy God's wrath against you. To have your sins forgiven. To see and to savor the righteousness of God and the death of His Son. So this passage helps us see that this is all something that happens by grace, through faith, which means we have nothing of our own in which we can boast. So the proper application of this text this morning is not something that we need to do, go try harder, go be better, something like that. The proper application of this text is simply to marvel, to wonder at the glory of a God who saves sinners such as us. To recognize that we worship a God who is just, but has also provided a means by which He might be gracious and loving so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
So let's pray and then we'll partake of communion together. Father, I thank you for this message, which is the pivot for the book of, uh, of Romans. It is at the heart of the gospel is this message that you are both just and the justifier. That you're loving, that you're gracious, that you're merciful, but you're also just and righteous and holy. And in your Son, you have provided a, a means by which those things can all be satisfied, Lord. So I pray for us. I pray that we might marvel, that we might rejoice, that we might worship You for all of Your glory and the goodness of the Gospel. Thank You for Your Word this morning, Lord. I pray that You would bless us as we partake in this uh, sacred meal for Your glory and our good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.